0: This is an ABC podcast. Good Hamlet, cast thy knighted colour off, and let thine eye look like a friend on Denmark. Do not forever with thy veiled lids seek for thy noble father in the dust. Thou knowest tis common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity.
1: Aye, madam, tis common.
0: If it be... Why seems it so particular with thee?
1: Seems, madam. Nay, no, it
2: is. That's Andrew Scott as Hamlet and Juliet Stevenson as his mother Gertrude in Robert Icke's production of Hamlet for the Almeida Theatre. Doesn't she just grab hold of that wonderful language? good I'm Michael Cathcart. So pleased to be back with you here on the stage show. Juliet Stevenson and Robert Ike have become regular collaborators now. And last year they brought the very taut ensemble play, The Doctor, to the Adelaide Festival. And I was lucky enough to see that performance and host a conversation with Juliet on stage at the Adelaide Festival Centre. And with so much of Australia now in lockdown and so many of our theatres dark once again, let's return to that delightful encounter. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to like you.
0: <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Lovely, Hi, Michael. Lovely
2: to have you here. How did you pull up after last night's first performance?
0: Oh, uh, I was, it was such a relief to get it sort of... It was like giving birth, you know. I think we've popped it out. It's such a relief. <laughs> um, no, it was, it was a really... It was a great night, and, and the audience were fantastic. I mean, I think we had no idea how it would be received. Um, i would never done a show in Australia before uh, but the audience were amazing and right from the start very, very alert, completely on it, they laughed, they were completely attentive all the way through. It was, exciting, really to be in, it
2: was exciting to be in the audience because there was such complete attention the whole way
0: through. Totally, completely, yeah. you couldn't hear a pin drop and no, it was, it, was, it was a really good night. You have such a rich sense of how to draw emotional power from the rhythm of
2: language. Do you know when you first felt that power? I mean, was it poetry when you were young? Where
0: did it come from, this ability to hear how language can be turned into emotional energy? Well, that's it, a brilliant question because it was poetry. The reason I became an actor was not because I saw um, movies or things on telly that inspired me, or even went to the theatre. I did none of those things because my, my, my dad was in the army, so we lived on army bases most of my childhood where you, you don't get to see anything. But when I was nine, I was at this school in England, I'd gone back to England to school, and we had this sort of speech day thing that parents were coming to, not mine, they were abroad, but, um, and and they asked us all to read something, you know, a little show we were gonna put on, and um, there were various sort of extracts of poems and bits of prose lying around, and I picked up a piece of paper, turned it over, and there was a poem written on it which I now know was, is a poem by W.H. Auden. It's a love poem from one man to another. But at nine years old, I hadn't, I don't think I'd read a poem before that. I, but I read this poem to myself and I was completely overwhelmed by it. And it, it was the rhythms of it that just went through me. And I thought, I have to read this poem out loud. I, I couldn't have put words to it, but what I wanted to do was be the conduit, the sort of vessel through which this poem passed. You know, I had a very strong sense of just wanting to stand up and say those rhythms. And it was a, it's a beautiful poem called, If I Could Tell You, I Would Let You Know. And the end of every verse it says, if I could tell you, I would let you know. And there's a beauty in that rhythm, it's simple. Um, but very beautiful, like a bell chiming, this sort of repetition of this line again and again. And I think, I mean, everything I think practically ever since goes back to that moment because I think that we are conduits, that's what we are, that's the job description. You know, we kind of, writing passes through us, it takes human form and then it flows out to you guys in the audience Um, and it's good to remember that, it's kind of a good leveler, you know, that is all we are you know, it's a, it's a good job, but let's not get too overexcited about ourselves. And we, we are, you know, that's what our job is. And we serve the writing. That's my tradition. You know, you, you serve the writer. You harness your ego to the writing, not the other way around. Um, but rhythm has become an obsession of mine because I think that it is like music, that it communicates things to people that we don't even need to analyze or understand. We are affected by the rhythm of language in the same way as we are affected by music. We just have no idea that it's happening to us necessarily. I mean, the iambic pentameter, which is in Shakespeare, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question, is Rob Icke uses it a lot in this play. You don't notice it. You shouldn't notice it. We shouldn't even notice it. But it's there, and there, is a, there, is a, there are rhythms in that play that are just exquisite, he has a brilliant ear as a writer. We, we should say that
2: Rob Icke is the director of the show and also he created this script based on an
0: Oh yeah, I an Austrian Yeah, I should mention that, yes. He, he, it's a play by Schnitzler, um, Austrian writer, written at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and the sort of structure is, is the same, but Robert Eich took it and rewrote it in mod, for the modern day, um, as he does with all plays that he does. He rewrites them for, the, for modern times, but he is a fantastic writer.
2: Let, let, let's, come back, let's come back to the plan in a minute because I just want to talk about the craft of acting first. Um, so what yeah. about this weird business of becoming someone else? Because it's a very peculiar way to make your living, you know, for the entertainment of strangers, basically. Yeah.
0: When did you know that that was your thing? Do you know, I don't know. Because, I mean, like, theatre was never part of my life as a kid. I didn't go, you know, it wasn't... But I, I had a weird childhood, now I think about it. You know, everybody thinks their childhood's normal, don't they? But, you know, moving on, I lived in Australia for two or three years, from three years old to six, and we went to Malta for two years, and we went back to Germany again. And We, were, we moved on a lot. You never had the same climate, furniture, houses, friends, schools. Everything changed constantly. And I, I think that means that you are thrown back on yourself a lot to keep yourself amused. I remember being a new girl all the time, New girl with looking, hoping to make friends, take, you know, losing the friends I'd had before. I mean, this is not a sob story. But I think, I, I think looking back, I did spend a lot of time in my own head. I had brothers, but they were back in England. And um, I think I always had a camera running in my head, pretending to be other people. It's probably very common for actors to say that. Um, did you look at other people and imitate what they did? Not at all, no. I didn't do that. No, it was more like internal. It was all internal. It was nothing to do with externals. So when I went to RADA to train and they said, oh, you know, could you please get your hair out of your face? And could you please put some makeup on? And could you please look like a girl, you know, more often? I don't know what they were talking about. What's that got to do with anything? I don't I, didn't, I really, genuinely didn't understand that acting had something to do with what you look like. I mean, that's, that's always been a shock. But shot. that suggests
2: that the early you is acting as a kind of internal performance, and totally, that's perhaps yeah. what Rada yeah. taught you was to turn yeah. the energy outwards—that it's about the breath out rather than the inspiration going in. Exactly. Mm. So the next year, after you left Rada in '78, you joined the Royal Shakespeare Company, and you're in *The Tempest* that year. What was your role in *The Tempest*?
0: So, I, uh, I went up to Stratford-on-Avon to the RSC at, at about three hours' notice. Somebody had fallen off a pavement, broken her leg. The Tempest was the first show of the season. It was about to open, and they needed um, another girl to come up and take her place. And it was to play, it was a sort of shut-up-and-do-what-you're-told contract, you know, the bottom level. Um, I was to play a sea-nymph. Um, <laughs> uh, I have no idea why you're laughing. Um, <laughs> Um, a strange shape, um, one of Prospero's weird, you know, woo-woo people. And, um, and um, yeah, some other sort of harpy thing.
1: So and, a, oh, a dog, a a dog. no, I'm
0: sorry, a hell hound, a hound oh, wow. from hell. Um, and I, I literally, they, they summoned me in at 10 o'clock in the morning. They said, can you be on a train at 2? I was on a train at 2 with a little bag packed. I got to Stratford. They pulled off my coat and my suitcase. They took me to the wings and they said, just follow that girl and do whatever she does. And the dress rehearsal was, was halfway through, I promise you. And I was, um, I was 20 and I stood in the wings like this and there was this sort of sh- person in front of me and suddenly she ran on stage, so I ran behind her and she barked, so I barked. <laughs> and then she ran around and I ran around after her and then we ran off. Anyway, that was Ruby Wax. I don't know whether you know Ruby <laughs> Yes, Yes. so uh, who's now a beloved friend of mine. But anyway, nobody has a clue how she got into the country, let alone into the Royal Shakespeare Company <laughs> or into equity. Um, I would say that in front of her. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, that was the start. And then the, the girl with a broken leg um, got better. But then somebody else fell pregnant, so I took over two small roles that she was playing. And, um, and then they just sort of... They sort of grew me like a little plant. You know, they threw lots of amazing opportunities at me. And, and in those days, the RSC was fantastic. I mean, you had incredible people doing... David Suchet, you know David, who's wonderful Poirot? He was there. Um, he would do workshops every Saturday morning in his spare time. And we had, you know, geniuses like John Barton doing sonnet classes. The genius, Cicely Berry, the legendary voice coach doing voice classes at nine every morning. Um, so it was, like a, it was a bit like a, a conservatoire as well as a producing house. So I just learnt everything there. And then amazing actors. I mean, just standing in the wings watching this incredible work. Um, so, Recently
2: you said that Shakespeare should only be done in modern dress.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm with Rob Ike on that. I mean, I think... Um, I love most Shakespeare passionately, but I... They have no interest in doing Shakespeare sort of archivally or like the way they did it in his time. I'm not at all a Globe Theatre person. I think that the the plays are phenomenal if they speak to our times. Otherwise, let's not bother with them. And there are a couple that I think are unplayable now for that reason. What would they be? The Taming of the Shrew. I mean, you can't have a play about a man beating up a woman and, and humiliating her, and that's supposed to be funny. I mean, it's just, you know, I think history has overtaken that idea, hopefully. And I think The Merchant of Venice is very troublesome, too, for obvious reasons. Um, you have a central character who's Shylock, who is, you know, submitted to so much anti-Semitism, and although he does create some of his own problems, you cannot eradicate that from the play. And I think post-World War II, I just don't know how you you know, people bend over backwards to try and do that play, but I think, I think it's very difficult. Um, but, you know, no, I love, love, love Shakespeare, but I do think, and I've always thought this, only in the light of what it has to offer us now, and most of them have a vast banquet to offer us now, but I think it really helps to do it in modern dress. Yeah. Um, well, I've watch been watching it.
2: the version you did with Robert Icke, uh, in which you play Gertrude, this is uh, Hamlet, uh, with Andrew Scott as the terrifying, seductive, funny, violent Hamlet. And uh, if you can't remember who Andrew Scott is, he's the guy who was Moriarty in Sherlock. You know, that really creepy, creepy Moriarty. Well, he's even creepier as Hamlet.
0: Well, have you not had Fleabag out here? Oh, yeah. and Fleabag. He's the um, sexy priest in Fleabag. As that's well. right, that's right.
2: So so the the scene that really struck me was the scene between the two of you, between Hamlet and Gertrude in, in, the, um, in her chamber, the famous mm. scene where mm. he confronts her with the enormity of what she's done, the incestuousness of her passion and mm. her complicity in the death of the, the king. And I'd never seen the scene played with such passion or violence or, I mean, the incestuous rage that... Hamlet unleashes on her is gobsmacking. I wouldn't have thought you could pushed it so far. So it was interesting to see a director take that part in, uh, take that scene to such extremes. And you seem to be a person who loves Going to the, that extreme end of human emotion,
0: is that true? I think I do. I, I like going to the dangerous places in in humanity. I think they exist in all of us, and most of the time we 're walking around in our little boxes, being really well behaved and obedient and we must be because we have to live together and love each other and live in harmony and all the rest of it. But I think that you know, human beings are capable of a vast range of stuff, and then we 're brought up to be sort of to censor a lot of it, and I think people go to the theater. Partly because they want to see the range of what humanity means and is, and they recognize it. They're not allowed to be it or do it a lot of the time, and most people can't express that stuff, but they need to see it played out. And it's not that you you play all roles like that all of the time, but I do think that theatre offers a chance for people to sit in the dark together and see the whole scope of human experience. Um, only a small amount of which they will be allowed to, you know, express in their daily lives, but they may feel it and they may have felt it, and they may be going on to experience some of those things. And so we recognize our scope, um, and that is, you know, and we and we try to understand it. And we, we, we don't judge it, we recognize it and we try and and identify the reasons why people get to those points yeah. in their lives. And I think that's what's, you know, that is what is compassionate and, and humane about what we do and why we need to keep doing it, especially well, now um, in a very judgmental culture to understand the whys. Why do people do what they do? Why do they say what they say? Why does conflict arise? You know, that, that's where its humanity resides, I think. Seeing you
2: last night in The Doctor, I experienced a kind of deja vu because 30 years ago, I saw you at the Royal Court Theatre in a play called Death and the Maiden. by the Chilean playwright Er Ariel Dorfman, and that's a performance that won you an Olivier Award. And it's about a woman who unexpectedly gets the chance to torture a man who was present when she herself was tortured by agents of the government. And she basically, well, confines him and and really unleashes on him. So... That's where I formed the thought, having seen you last night, wow, Juliet really does like to go... And seeing you as Gertrude really seems to like to go to these dark, extreme places, places that are kind of beyond reason. Because often when you talk to actors as they're developing their role, we're looking for a kind of rational explanation for how people behave. Mm. But it seems to me that you're able to tap into what's irrational and primal and just let that rip.
0: Well, that's... It's interesting that when I started work, for, for many years, I used to be very kind of quite rational in the way I approached a role. So I'd always go through the script, I'd make lists, I'd write down everything the character said about herself. I'd make another list of everything other people said about her. I'd research the period, the climate, the, you know, I'd, I'd do it, which is great, interesting work to do. And it's not that I don't think you should do that. But as I've got older, I think, funny enough, I work more and more instinctively that might be laziness, because once you have kids, you just don't have time to prep like that. It takes dozens of hours, and you don't have it at home um, when you've got kids. But I, seriously, I do think, I believe in instinctive decision-making much, much more than I used to. And I try and keep the head out of it. I mean, it's important to keep rationality there. Um, I mean, the p- character I'm playing is extremely rational on the face of it. She's a scientist, she's a doctor, she thinks she's completely rational. But my job as playing her is to explore and reveal all those ways in which her insistent rationality is actually informed by all sorts of other things that she's not aware of. And then you present a human being, you know, complicated, contradictory, multilayered human being. Um, hopefully, I mean, that's the aim.
2: On Radio National, this is the stage show. We're at the Adelaide Festival with the English actor Juliet Stevenson. So, uh, as you were saying, this is Robert Icke's update of a play performed in Vienna in 1912. Uh, The original play is called Professor Bernardi, and it's by the Austrian playwright Arthur Schnitzler, and the original play was set in 1920. And it's a chilling read because it, it it does sort of foreshadow the anti-Semitism that is to come because what we haven't revealed is that the Doctor in your version and in the original version is Jewish and her Jewishness becomes part of what's kind of on trial in the court of public opinion here. I was astonished how true to the original play and gratified by how true to the original play the new play is. So what was the process of adapting that forgotten play, really, to make this new one.
0: Well, Michael, I I was forbidden to read the original play by by Rob, actually, so I had never read it. Um, And I wasn't involved in the adaptation at all. I mean, he really, he, Robert Icke, who directed it, he he does all the writing himself. He just, um, he said, don't read the original, it'll only confuse you. Just wait until I've finished writing it. But, you know, I know that it was written in about 1912, and it, is, it was set in a, in a private medical institution, which would have been a Jewish institution. Um, probably all the doctors would have been Jewish in Vienna at that time. So I think the whole element of, of Jewishness and anti-Semitism, when the incident that happens at the beginning of the play then becomes very public, and in his day, that would have meant becoming the subject of a lot of gossip and going into newspapers. Nowadays, of course, we, you know it goes viral on social media which is much, much worse and so this play is now looking at the whole sort of cancelling culture that exists on Twitter and Facebook where one small incident happens somewhere in the world and suddenly the whole world has a view on it and they all chip in from their agendas and something that nobody was there to witness, nobody really understands um, or understands the circumstances of, has an opinion on all over the world and can destroy those people involved and that's sort of Part of
2: what we're looking at. Um... So we don't want, we don't want to give away the play because it, the way it unfolds is, is just so marvelous and so unexpected. But the setup is that uh, there is a girl who is dying because she's got septicemia brought on by an abortion she's performed on herself. Um, a a priest shows up wanting to administer the last rites and your character, the doctor says, there's no way you're going in there. She is happy. She doesn't know she's dying. These are the last hours of her life and I will not have you coming in basically with your superstitious stuff and scaring the daylights out of her and causing her to die, perhaps earlier than she would, in a state of distress rather than a state of calm. As a doctor, my sole responsibility is the welfare of my patient. She is my patient. I don't even know who you are. Get out of my clinic. Mm. And it turns out that her parents are Catholic. The patient has professed no faith. And that confrontation between the doctor and the priest explodes into an online nightmare for the Mm. doctor. And the whole cancellation culture is unleashed on her but it's also she faces conflict within the hospital herself where her fellow colleagues turn out to have I don't know a hundred different agendas that all coincide in this kind of fireworks and your character sort of goes up in flames and in the, in the middle of it all. So were you familiar with the power of the, the cancellation culture with the sort of what's sometimes called political correctness and how violent it or vicious it can be to people who get caught in the middle of it all?
0: Uh, I certainly was because I've been on the receiving end of it to some extent myself and in fact I came off Twitter after two or three years because I just couldn't stand the trolling any longer. Um, I don't mind being trolled for things that I genuinely believe in. I think, okay, well, I mean, that's your problem. That's who I am. If you don't like it, too bad. What's more complicated is when you get trolled for something that you haven't done or uh, you get charged with things that are anathema to you Um, and that started happening. So. And that definitely began to affect my mental health, and I hadn't really realized until it got very, very bad, and I sought some advice, and then somebody said, listen, just go off it for a month. And the minute I deleted Twitter from my phone, the minute I did, I felt significant change in my mental health. (laughs) I mean, I just felt better. And then as the days went on, I thought, my God, I feel just so relieved not to be in that screaming chamber Um, anymore and you know i mean twitter was also very useful it's great to be able to use it to say come and see our show and it's great to be able to support charities and try and get people to donate to a charity or something but it isn't it wasn't worth it and and i think where we've got to on social media you know i mean it's, it's like all things that are invented it has phenomenal positive sides to it and it has terrible terrible consequences in certain ways and um, I think it's become a crazy world now. I mean, the judgmentalism that it's allowed, uh, you know, the, the lack of sophisticated, humane consideration of people, of circumstances, of events, of news. So yeah, I do, I do understand that. And I felt it was extraordinary that a lot, lot of this went on when I was rehearsing this play. So there was an irony that art and life were mirroring each other last summer. Um, of course, if you don't understand it, as Professor Wolf in the play does not, she does not do Twitter, and uh, then all this is going on without her even understanding yeah, the she forces. Doesn't know it's happening. Uh, she doesn't know it's happening yeah. until it hits her. Hits her. And I just—I mean—I want to be clear. I think it's—it's it's very important. I mean, identity groups do, you know do have a function. I mean, you know, I'm a feminist, and I think there are lots of arguments, you know, why women do have to speak about women's issues, and, and I am I'm not. I don't think that we're saying these individual groups and, and political organizations of, of culturally and socially are entirely a bad thing. They're not. People have to fight for their rights. Um, people have to cut a path through the status quo to create progress and freedoms for themselves and and to point up injustices and inequalities i would be completely in favor of that i think finally what the player is saying but let's understand the complexity involved in in all our decision making and our actions and let's remind ourselves that we are fundamentally human and that we all have in common and as our great you know late lamented mp joe cox um said we have more in common than that which divides us we have to remember that. Um, so I think, you know, not to be too uh, ambitious for what the play is, but it is speaking to that sort of breadth and complexity of, of, of human response, rather than seeing the world through your own particular um, lens at the expense of everybody else's. Yeah,
2: a lens of them and us, rather than a kaleidoscope that yeah. shows a rainbow. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. So as we look down
2: the list of your, the characters you've played? I mean, it's an incredible list. You've played Isabella, Rosalind, Hedda Garbler, you've been in The Seagull in Private Lives, The Duchess of Malfi, you've played Gertrude in Hamlet. If you could go back and repeat a role, or perhaps do it in a new, new way, is there one role you think, yeah, I'd love to go back and have another go at that?
0: Oh, regardless of age, I mean, Isabella in Measure for Measure was a phenomenal part. I don't know if you... Do you know that play? It's an amazing play because it's about a young woman who's about to become a nun. She's not about to become a nun because she's sort of incredibly chaste and virtuous. I think probably the opposite, because she needs to go into a nunnery to contain her passions and her that wasn't my view um, and then she's pulled out at the last minute because her brother's been condemned to death for getting his girlfriend pregnant and suddenly there's been a change of government with a very austere governor of vienna where the play is set and so she has to go and beg for her brother's life to this governor and then when she does that um, she finds this she's suddenly able to be sort of quite articulate and she says well haven't you ever done the same thing you know and then she starts to question the governor's morality and said you can't enforce a law that you couldn't impose on yourself. So she really starts to argue about the relationship between the personal and the political and the personal morality of those who govern us. And then the play explodes on that theme. And you know, I think looking around the world today, if if there ever was a more apposite, more appropriate play, you know, <laughs> to be doing, um, I went to see Measure for Measure not long ago, and I found myself really envying the young actress playing Isabella, and thinking, oh God, to have that language in my mouth again, you know, to be able to say that stuff on a stage, and you know, what to be screaming in, into every uh, government building uh, at the moment um, in our country, anyway. Um, What about
2: big roles that are age-appropriate? Is there something you'd you'd still like to
0: try? I never know what I want to do. I I don't have dreams like that. It's really more for me about who I work with now. I mean, Rob Ike, who directed this play, um, we've done quite a lot of work together now, and it's just phenomenal to have found him and work with him. I went for a long, long time feeling quite lonely and thinking I desperately want collaborators. I've had a few in my life. But I've gone for long stretches without them. So, Anthony Mangella, who I did um, film Truly Madly Deeply with, he was a very close friend and we worked a lot together. Then he died. Um, so, you know, you, 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 you have relationships with certain actors like Alan Rickman, I did loads and loads of work with. Um, lost him. I mean, you, you, you're lucky to find a collaborator, and I've had just a few in 30, 40 years. Um, and Rob is, I mean, staggering i i he, he i just feel like he's sort of given me a lease of like he, he's so tough when, when you when you get to a certain age and you've done quite a bit of work people stop directing you they just think oh, well we better not uh, or you know, either status issues stop them giving you notes, or they just I think, well, we, you know, she, she knows what she's doing or something. But it's really, really dangerous, because I think actors often get worse as they get older. You see actors and, oh, God, the same old mannerisms, the same old performances churned out again and again, and the world says, well, they're famous, so we have to think they're wonderful. But you don't have to think they're wonderful. They're not, you know. They're just repeating old stuff. And I was so terrified of, of that happening to me. And so Rob, the glory of finding a collaborator like Rob Icke is that he's really tough with me. Treats me like shit, you know. <laughs> really, really tough. I mean, you know, he's on, he'll, he'll phone me at two in the morning and say, get off Twitter, or go to bed, I can see you're still online, or, you know. Um, thinking, I've got four children. You? Um, but, but, but more importantly, in rehearsal room, he just won't have a single line. Uh, he won't let a mannerism survive. He, won't, he doesn't want me to do anything I've done before. He doesn't want me to rely on any old tools or tricks. And that's exactly you know, what you need. And he's just, he's, he's just opened up whole ways of thinking about theatre that have been kind of intoxicatingly exciting. How do you um, keep it on edge?
2: Every night, because the repetition of the thing must be a challenge. I mean, I don't know how many times you've done it, but after you leave here in Adelaide, you're going back to England where you're going to perform it in Brighton. Yeah. And then you're going to perform in two theatres in London. Now, you're on, you know, going on with this play until the middle of the year. How do you keep it electric every oh, night? Oh, I mean,
0: well, that's it, Michael. I mean, that is the challenge. That is the killer. The repetition is the killer. Um, I try and keep feeding new things in in my head so i'll take a line and i'll think what's that line contain in terms of history or memories and i'll keep creating little new backstories for the character or feed in by what i'm reading sometimes or what you watch or what you hear you can sort of feed into the play all the time so there's a little river little stream of things being fed in all the way through the run but the basic thing is that at about 7.28 every evening, you have to stand in the wings and you have to just clean out everything. And kind of, it's like, a, it's like a take your spirit and your brain to the laundrette and wash it out. And then you walk on stage absolutely in the present moment. If you're even slightly anticipating or even slightly in the past, it's no good. You have to be absolutely in the present, just not have known what anybody was ever going to say until they say it and respond to it. It sounds really simple. It's the hardest thing to do, but it is the thing that will create, you know, lively, fresh theatre. It's what Peter Brook calls, you know, a live theatre as opposed to deadly.
2: Yeah. Would you thank Juliet Stevenson? Oh, I've got goosebumps just hearing that all over again. What a thrill. Juliet Stevenson on stage with me at last year's Adelaide Festival. I'm Michael Cathcart, and this is The Stage Show. Well, our dreams of a performing arts calendar free of lockdowns and border closures have turned well to nightmares really in the last few months. But I'm certainly thankful for the arts that we were able to enjoy last summer and autumn. The Melbourne International Comedy Festival went ahead and back then we were lucky enough to welcome the wonderful singer and comedian Jude Pearl to our music studio. She sang her song, I Have a Face for Us, which includes a message that I think might all benefit from hearing right now.
3: This is uh, from my show that I did in 2019 that was, it's all about uh, mental health and it's kind of like a a song for all my fellow mental health friends out there that, you know, sometimes when you're someone who feels down, people might try and tell you how to fix it and everything and sometimes
2: you just got to feel down, so... Is there any strong language in this?
3: Yes, there are a couple of of words there that are strong.
2: Rude four-letter words. Yes. Excellent.
3: that you've heard a thousand times before Have you tried meditation? Oh my god, no You're the first person to suggest appropriate Eastern philosophy Why didn't I think of that? Well, I'm not gonna tell you everything's gonna be alright Cause I don't know what kind of fucked up shit is happening in your life But what I will do is share with you some phrases I find comforting Phrase one breakfast will be provided. No heavy lifting for the rest of the day. Free postage. But my favorite phrase of all to say is Plastic, but you can't find the drop-off point at the supermarket So you just put it in the normal bin and feel bad Well, I'm not gonna tell you that we're all gonna work it out Cause humans are Earth's leechy boyfriend And she's trying to kick us out But what I will do is share with you Some phrases I find comforting Arch support will be provided Plush bathrobes available in teal Comments disabled Doesn't come with any guarantees Like planning a 10-month international tour for the year 2020 Or being disappointed with every Star Wars film made after 1983 Like writing a song called Ironic And then everyone makes fun of you Cause the lyrics aren't technically irony <laughs> Isn't that ironic? No? Yes, I don't know the definition of that word either Well, you don't have to tell me Everything's gonna be alright It's nice that you care But you don't have to lie I'll tell you What you can do Use these phrases that are comforting My shoulder Will be provided I'm sorry Things have been shit I'm listening And every part of it is in the right place Nobody's face could ever replace your face That would be a disgrace and I would really miss your face
2: Jude Pearl performing for you here in the stage show studio with "I Have a Face." Well, you've got a real musical sound. I mean, like from a musical.
3: Oh, oh, cool. Oh, thank you. Do you think <laughs> yeah. you've got
2: a musical in you?
3: Um, I'd like to think so, but I mean, all my shows are like solo shows, but in my head, they're like full scale
2: <laughs> right. musicals. But yeah. Like. Oh, you've got friends on stage in your mind.
3: Yes, and there's sets bit, and
2: costumes. It's and a bit, little bit sad. A little bit. What sad. would this musical be about? Let's workshop it. What are we? What are we doing?
3: Um, well, there's. I have one one idea that would be like greeting cards. The musical. That's one idea. Yeah. Um, but that's all I've got. Just the name. Um, or there could be a musical about. Something to do with my Jewish relatives. I'm sure there's something in there.
2: Oh, possibly. every musical in the world something to do with my Jewish relatives. That's true. It that, has been done before. It's been done. Still, it works. Jude. Yes. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Jude Pearl there. No use being too sure of tour dates just now, but should the situation improve, she has shows scheduled throughout regional Victoria in September and October. And you'll find a link to those details on our website i'm michael Cathgart. this is the stage show now here is one from the archives one of my very very favorite interviews <laughs> some music from the 2004 movie The Aviator, which starred Leonardo DiCaprio. Now, I've known for a while that great actors, or some great actors like DiCaprio, often have private acting coaches. And I have wondered what these coaches do and whether they get in the way of directors who presumably have their own ideas about how the leading man should approach the role. So it's a huge... Huge pleasure to welcome Larry Moss to the studio. Larry's an acting coach who's worked with the likes of DiCaprio and Helen Hunt. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Michael.
2: So nice to have you here. So, you've got all these famous actors. They can already act. Why do they need
1: you? I don't know. I think it's so <laughs> silly that they ask me to help them. Why would they? Um,
2: well, what are they looking for? What do they hope that Larry will bring to them?
1: I think what happens in films is that there's not a lot of time. Uh, whereas in plays you rehearse for four weeks or more, yep. uh, whereas in a movie you really most of the time don't rehearse. Oh, you don't rehearse at all? No, I mean, some do. Uh, the wonderful American director Sidney Lumet, um, who uh, directed uh, uh, oh, many, 12 Angry Men was his uh, one of his first films that yep. was great, but he went on to direct many, many uh, The Fugitive Kind and... Uh, um, Oh, my God, I, I'm, this escapes me now, but I can think of... Uh, You're in a different time zone. I am in a different time zone. But um, he said um, uh, that the, the idea of people um, listening and talking to each other is the basis of it, but he would rehearse for two weeks before filming, right. whereas Clint Eastwood doesn't rehearse at all. And when I was working with uh, Hilary Swank on Million Dollar Baby, and uh, she had done a a, a, um, a scene, and uh, Clint Eastwood had she had done two takes, and, and Clint Eastwood said, "Okay, let's move on." And Hilary said, "Well, I can do it better." He said, "I don't need it better," and she said, "I do." And so he said, "Well, then let, let Hillary Hilary do it in another time." And then she did it, and he said, "Oh my God, yeah. you were so right." And I think that that comes with preparation. So what I do with these uh, wonderful actors is that basically we would break the script down scene by scene, and we rehearse it, and we talk about the character and the biography of that particular person they're playing, and... Um, what, it's a, what each scene is about what the characteristics are, how they walk uh, what their rhythms are how much melody they have in their voice you were playing the aviator when we were working on that, I've talked about this many times um, Howard Hughes had about three notes in his voice, he would say things like um, uh, it's wonderful to be here at this wonderful premiere, I hope you enjoy my movie and uh, we'll, here we are And yet when he was with a friend he would add two more notes and he would have a bit more melody in his voice, so when you find that kind of specificity of behaviour, um, that's what you're always looking for. I thought directors
2: did all that, but they don't. I mean, they do in the theatre. Some
1: do, but not not yeah. not very much for film. Oh,
2: well, it, I had some experience working on TV making uh, documentaries where I was the historian on screen, and there were actors doing reenactments. And I was shocked that the director gave no direction at all. And when I said to him, don't you ever direct the actors? He said, I think that would be presumptuous of me to direct the actors. I don't tell them how a musician how to play his instrument. I don't tell actors how to do their thing. They're professionals. They'll just come and do it. And when they get it right, I say cut, and that's the one we use.
1: Well, there's two kinds. You know. I, I mean, I, I did a movie, I don't know if it's played in Australia, called Top Five with uh, Chris Rock uh, and uh, Rosario Dawson. And um, you know, Chris is basically a comedian. But he was playing a, a romantic leading man, and uh, we worked um, a, a great deal. And and uh, you know, it's the great thing about being a coach and getting good jobs is you're working with all of these different. To work with a comic who wants to act and who uh, who found that he could, yeah. and then you you're working with someone as great as Hillary or Leonardo uh, and some of the other people and Helen Hunt. Um, you suddenly go, I mean. Uh, you feel honored. Um, I'm lucky enough to work with a wonderful American actor named Nathan Lane, and Nathan just finished doing Eugene O'Neill's Iceman Cometh, and he asked to do the Iceman Cometh. Um, he didn't need to do it. He's, he's a bona fide Broadway star, but he wanted to grow as an artist, and so he took on one of the most difficult roles in the American theater, Hickey, in Iceman Cometh, and he just had a great success with it, working on it for a year and a half.
2: Okay, suppose we're playing Hickey... How do I, as the actor, prepare for that role? Do I need to know about what the character did and thought before the play starts?
1: Yes. Well, he's a salesman. And um, one of the great things about working on a character is you go, well, what do they do for a living? Well, I have to go use my imagination and actually find out what it's like to be a traveling salesman. So we did an improvisation and I said, well, um, Nathan, come to my apartment and sell me something. And now, next time you come, knock on the door and, and, um, uh, oh, actually it's your apartment. Yeah. And I said, sell me something. And he, and he knocked on the door. And, Hi, uh, Larry. Yeah. And I said, what do you want? And and he said, said, I I said, well, no, he said, you know, um, um, I talked with your wife last week and she said, if I came by, maybe you'd like to talk to me about, uh, you know, this, uh, this, this washing machine. I can't afford it. I said, Um, and then I yelled to my imaginary wife and I said, honey, did you, some salesman come by? And she went, yes. And and, all right, well, you can come in. He had to work for 45 minutes to sell me that goddamn washer. Right. But he did it. Right. And that set him up to understand the aspect of what it is to be a, his whole life to sell. So there's these these techniques that people do to prepare. I mean, Hillary, we talked about it many times, Hillary Swank lived as a boy for a month. Uh, right after she was married to Chad Lowe, she cut her hair, she wore boy's clothes, and he would introduce her as his brother, that his younger be, brother. That would
2: be very challenging in a relationship, wouldn't
1: it? Well, I don't know their personal business, but... I would say that they are both loving and supportive people and the point is that she said i can't play the part unless i can make it work in life now you don't always have to go to that extreme but if you watch boys don't cry and you see her performance you go oh my god that's really she found the truth of that character
2: i mean i know that one of your key principles is putting your awareness on the other person.
1: Well, that comes from Sanford Meisner, the great American teacher, who said, we, you can relax more as an actor if you're aware of what the other person is doing. So you watch the other person. I mean, we're looking at each other right now, and I'm seeing you look at me, and if I put my attention on that, I'll notice little things like your eyes are blinking and yeah. my eyes are, you can see that in me, but I can see that in you, yeah. and you're concentrating right now, and I'm concentrating, and we're working off of the moment-to-moment reality of what's happening between us. And if that's not how happening between actors there's no real life so this is why actors say sometimes that all acting is really interacting that's right reacting or reacting. it's reacting yes to what you're getting from the other person in the moment of the now of now so that it's not acting it's living yeah in the moment i've always thought of it just like playing tennis it's exactly like that oh my god michael That is exactly what it is. If you watch tennis, that's acting, because you don't know how that ball is going to come over the net. You have to make a snap decision, you have to trust your instincts, and you have to make a decision and put your shoulder behind it and return that ball. That happens in how many seconds? That is exactly acting. Right. Less than a second, probably. Less than a second. But that's what you train for as an actor, to be that alive and that in the moment. See, Larry, that's why I was never good at acting, because I can't play tennis. That's exactly right. And it's a tragedy because had you been able <laughs> the to world play, well, no, been, I mean, you know, had you been able to play tennis, you would have been a great actor. We wouldn't even have this interview because you'd be making a movie right now. But but I'd be trained by you probably. Well, I mean if if we were both lucky enough to work off of each other <laughs> in the moment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that final consonant! Now I reckon final consonants are terribly important for nailing an
1: emotion, for nailing an idea. Oh my God! Do you know sometimes people go, "Well, I want to be real in acting." You go, and then you hear them, uh, even on television, and they'll go like this: "They'll go, go, well, I went downtown to get fun. You go, "What?" I went downtown. Then I go, well, "What the hell are you saying?" Well, I went downtown to get a quart of milk. I said, "Well, then why don't you say it?" Yeah. Well, no, I don't want to be acting. Well, I said, but, but, but if I can't understand it, it's not good acting. Yeah, at least say milk. At least say milk. Make the rest of it real, but fake the kuh, milk. See? See what a fine actor you could have been and what a tragedy it is that you didn't. Your King Lear could have changed the world, but no, Michael. You didn't do it. No, I didn't do it's it. It's very sad. Yeah. See how our voice is changing? Yeah. How sad we're both getting I'm about the loss my, of your talents. Your I'm, eyes are filling with tears right now. I have so much compassion. I know. It's I'm, breaking my heart. I'm really. finding I my don't inner know, I just don't know if I can go on with the interview. It's so upsetting. <laughs> In your book.
2: <laughs> yes. Which which interestingly is called Intent to Live, not
1: Intent to Act. It's called The Intent to Live. Uh-huh, the, that, that article that is important. Don't leave, important. The,
2: don't leave the article out, Michael. No. The article is vital. Exactly. The intent to live, not the intent to act. You say obstacle, object, and attention, the triad of all acting.
1: Yes. What do I want? Well, first of all, who am I? Meaning where do I come from? What kind of background do I have? Uh, What nationality am I? What kind of social background do I have? What kind of education? All those things that make us who we are. You know what I say in my class? I I just said it yesterday. I said, if someone had to play you, what would they have to know? We're all characters, Oh yeah, that's right? Good. If someone was going to play you, yeah. Michael, what would they have to know about your life mm-hmm. and your childhood, why you dress the way you dress, why you walk the way you walk, why you interview so excellently the way you do? We are all characters, and that's what I try to get my students to understand, that we are—you're not acting— you're finding the truth of the person you're playing you're finding Blanche DuBois or Stanley Kowalski or King Lear
2: now why is the question what do they want so critical to finding that character
1: because that is what our life is about i want my mommy i want i want a candy cane i want i want to do well in school i want to win the ball game i want to marry that girl but what I...
2: about the moments when you're not wanting what about you the moments never when... never
1: never not that
2: no but the, that seems like a very bleak view of human nature. What about when you're giving, when you're sharing, when you're cooperating? But that's part
1: of wanting. I want, you know, when a little baby suddenly is eating a cookie, that incredible moment where suddenly the baby stops, looks at the mother or the father and offers them the cookie. Yeah, That's love. That's the beginning of seeing the other person. I want to be close to you. I want to give you something. It makes me feel good. It's not selfish. It's part of what it is to be human. Now, what about Sally Bowles in, in, uh, in
2: Cabaret? I mean, she doesn't know what she wants to? Oh, she, yes,
1: she does. She wants to be famous. She wants everyone to love her. She wants to be glamorous. She wants to avoid her feelings. She, she, she But she's wa- so
2: disconnected. She's, she's, she's in this kind of tunnel, isn't she? Of, yes. Of, of, of obsession. But, 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 but obsession is wanting. Oh, I guess
1: it is. Right? And, and the last song in Cabaret is, I don't want to feel, I want to have a party. I yeah. want to have a party. I don't want to look at the fact that the Nazis are taking over.
2: Yeah, well the world. Life
1: is a cabaret. You go, no, life is six million people dying. No, it isn't. It's a cabaret.
2: Mm. I was watching North by Northwest last night. Wonderful movie. Hanny and I were watching that, my wife. Uh, And we're watching Kerry Grant. Now Kerry Grant it seems to me, is one kind of actor in in which the the actor pretty much does the same thing every
1: time, and that's what we love about Cary Grant. Well, Cary he's Grant, a personality actor. Yeah,
2: he will be Cary Grant, with a nuance one way or the e other. Clint but
1: Eastwood is like that. Barbara Streisand is like that. You don't go to see them play characters. No. You see them doing variations on their own theme. Whereas
2: Meryl Streep, you want her to be And different. Daniel
1: Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis, Kate Blanchett. They will be somebody different every time. That's right. There are these two kinds of actors almost.
2: There are the transformers and there are the people who've got one
1: brilliant thing that they just do That's very smart what you're saying. Yes, you do not want to see Clint Eastwood play King Lear. I just don't think you'd want to see that. You
2: know, now you've
1: said that. I don't know. (laughs) I don't think you want to see Barbara Streisand do Lady Macbeth. Clint
2: Eastwood rides into the scene and says, I've decided to give it all away.
1: (laughs) Tell me which of you loves me the most. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just don't want to see that. No.
2: Right? Now that I've workshopped it.
1: As I, th- idea, I or... think I think not. Yeah. But Meryl Streep and Daniel Day Lewis and Jeffrey Rush and Kate Blanchett are great character actors. They find the walk. They find the. You know, Laurence Olivier uh, said, "If I can find the nose, I can play him." Yeah. What does kind of nose did he have, and that 's a character actor, you know Leonardo is a character actor uh, he 's a leading man in the same way that Paul Newman was they were they they want to play different kinds of men and they're not want to play a variation on their own theme, but people who do that well, like Cary Grant did brilliantly, and he was an incredibly sensitive urbane funny um he came from vaudeville he was a comic you know archie leach was his you know i mean he he came from the theater they yeah, all did yeah you know i mean I, in north by
2: northwest which is a thriller he's funny all the way through that's right even though his life is uh, hanging by a thread
1: yes so that is we love our cary grants and we love uh, you know and barbara streisand when she was working but they, they don't give us what the great Meryl Streep does. You know, one of the things I tell my students is I say, you watch five films of Meryl Streep and five uh, films of Daniel Day-Lewis. First of all, watch it without sound and just watch their physical behavior. Now, just do the opposite. Don't watch it. Just listen and see what their vocal performances. That's character acting. The body is different. The voice is different. Cary Grant had the same voice. Clint Eastwood has the same voice. Make my day. You know, that's just personality acting and it can be incredibly effective and very moving, but it is not playing another person. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was speaking, luckily enough, to Mr. Steven Spielberg, who was trying to get Daniel Day-Lewis to play Lincoln. And, um, Uh, He said, I can't promise that I'll play it, but I will meet on it. And he came in with four portfolios about Lincoln for a meeting. He knew more about Lincoln than anybody, including Tony Kirshner, who wrote it, and Mr. Spielberg. And he said, after the meeting, I see how serious you are, and I will play Lincoln but I need a year to prepare.
2: Well, we've got to stop there, but I think that, that tells you two things. First is do your homework, and the second is I, I'm always astonished by actors and directors who say, no, I haven't seen that show or I haven't read that book because I don't want to be influenced. You think th- there, is a, there is a production or a book that's right on point and you don't want to be influenced, you don't want to know about that, that to me is an astonishing decision to make maybe you disagree, but we've got to stop. Thank you so much for
1: coming in. It was life-changing, Michael. Life Please, please go back to acting.
2: <laughs> Larry Moss. He's an actor. He's a director. He's an acting coach based in Los Angeles. And I so enjoyed that interview with him recorded some years ago. Uh, his acting textbook is called Intent to Live. Well, That's the show. I've spent the winter in the beautiful Snowy Valleys region of New South Wales working on a community theatre piece with the most generous and robust bunch of people you could ever meet. And I'm one more person caught in the lockdowns. I'm still here broadcasting from the apple-growing town of Batlow where spring is in the air. Thanks to Kim Jerrick for all his hard work as the producer of The Stage Show and I'm Michael Cathcart. I'll see you next time. Stay well. Bye-bye.